If you're familiar with uh, TED Talks on the Internet, uh, there's a series of talks. You can look them up on the Internet, TED, T-E-D, TED Talks. And there's some very interesting subjects that are presented by various speakers, and it's quite a phenomenon, especially in the business world. And there was one TED Talk uh, entitled The Paradox of Choice, The Paradox of Choice. And a secular psychologist was the presenter. His name is Barry Schwartz. And he claims that all of us live by an official dogma, an official belief system which says, maximize your happiness by maximizing your individual freedom. That was the thrust of this TED Talk. Maximize your happiness by maximizing your individual freedom. And according to Schwartz, the way to maximize our freedom is to maximize our choices. And he points to our local supermarket as an example of this. You go into the supermarket aisle where there are salad dressings, and there are over 175 different kinds of salad dressing. Now, there's some choices for you, right? You know, that's why I freeze up when I go to get salad dressing. There's just too many choices, too many of them there. But he says even our personal identity has become a matter of choice. If I were to ask you today, what is your identity or what is your ID, some of us would get out our driver's license and hold it up, and it has our picture. It has our weight, our height, our eye color, and our hair color, as well as our address, and we would say, this is my ID. Some of you would pull out a passport, which basically has the same information. It tells, you what con- tells people what country you're from, and, and if you're in good standing, and how you've traveled, and uh, we would get that out. But really, those things are, are really not a... a example of what our real identity is, is it? That is not our real identity. Uh, An identity means when you wake up each morning, what kind of person are you? Now, in our day and age, in popular culture, we can claim that we can change our identity depending on how we feel each day. Some recent current examples of that, do you remember the story about Rachel Dolezal, the former head of the NAACP in Spokane? who self-identified as being an African-American, even though she was uh, born from Caucasian parents in Montana. See, that's what happens if you're born in Montana. You get all confused about things. But, uh, you know, and she's coming out with a new book. And as one reviewer said, he doesn't see people fumbling for their credit cards just yet. But she's one example of somebody who her identity was not a white Anglo-American in a sense like that. She was African-American, and that's how she identified, by her own choice, not by uh, <clears throat> bioethics or anything else. That was her choice. And then another example, of course, is Caitlyn Jenner. We used to know him as Bruce, the Olympic medal winner, and who uh, self-determined, self-choice, that he was really female. He wasn't a male, no matter what his birth certificate said. And so his identity changed. We are highly invested in our identity, and if we don't like our identity, in this day and age, in postmodernism, you can change your identity if you want, evidently. Going through enough, uh, enough hoops, you can do that. Uh, but are you really changed, is my question. I've told you before about Ronda Rousey. Ronda Rousey uh, was named in 2015 by Sports Illustrated as the world's most dominant athlete, the most dominant athlete. She had uh, quite a run in her athletic performances. She was the first U.S. woman to ever win an Olympic medal in judo. She was the youngest woman to ever qualify for the Olympics at age 14. And consistently, she was one of the top three ranked judo champions in the world 
before transitioning into mixed martial arts, where she quickly dominated and became a world champion. Uh, going into November of 2015, she was 12-0 and 0 as a mixed martial arts fighter, and only one fighter even survived in the ring with her over one, one round. Eight of her 12 challengers were defeated in less than a minute. And then in November 2015, everything changed in Ronda Rousey's world. She got beat, and she got beat badly. She was interviewed shortly after her dev devastating loss, and she said, quote, I was literally sitting there and thinking about killing myself, and at that exact second, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? And no one cares about me anymore without this, unquote. Her whole identity was inseparable from her image as the most dominant athlete in the world. And without this, if she couldn't be this person, she couldn't, if she couldn't have this identity, and if she couldn't be known for being this person, from her perspective, she was nothing. She was good for nothing. She was unlovable. By the way, she's making a comeback uh, from that devastating loss, evidently. But that whole issue of what is our identity, what do we identify with? You know, interestingly, when you get a bunch of men together, especially the first question out of our mouths is, what do you do? <laughs> because we so closely identify with our vocation, with our work, that that seems like the logical thing to ask people. Back to Barry Schwartz and his TED Talk, The Paradox of Choice, he uses the picture of a fishbowl with two goldfish in it, and he says these things. Uh, the truth of the matter is, is if you shatter the fishbowl so that everything is possible, give these fish freedom, release them from the fishbowl, uh, you have destruction and you have paralysis. And it seems to me that in our culture, there's a lot of shattering of the fishbowls, thinking that that is going to be the ultimate maximizing our freedom, and yet what it does is push us further into bondage into sin. There's a decreasing of satisfaction if the metaphorical fishbowl is shattered. All of us need a really firm grip upon what our identity is. Mark Driscoll, uh, a former pastor and writer, he talks about the importance of our belief system. And I believe, as Mark, you will hear Mark Driscoll say, that it is critical to understand so that we can understand our identity when we understand our belief system. He writes that your theology leads to your doxology, which results in your biography. What he means is this. What you believe, our theology, enables you to worship. That's doxology. And through worshiping, you become like that which you worship. That is our biography. It goes from proposition to worship to transformation. You get to know who God is, you worship him, then you become like that which you love. And of course, in our culture, in our society, there's lots of things to love, lots of things to worship. And so the question is, is how are you moving in your theology to your worship to your biography? Because that's what forms who you are, your identity. The Apostle Paul understood this, and this passage in Galatians, remember we have been studying Galatians, and uh, the book of Galatians can be neatly outlined in three different major points, and the first point is the gospel of grace defended, 
in chapters 1 and 2, and that's what we have been looking at, and we will conclude chapter 2 today. And then chapters 3 and 4, the gospel of grace explained. It's really the doctrinal section of the book of Galatians and really mirrors the larger book of Romans. In fact, some have called Galatians a mini Romans in that sense. The Apostle Paul is explaining to us the gospel of grace in chapters 3 and 4. And then in chapters 5 and 6, as we conclude this short letter, the gospel of grace is applied in very practical ways. And so we're moving through this book of Galatians. And if you noticed, as Bill read, we are going to look at verses 15 through 21 of chapter 2. The word justified occurs three or three different times. The verb occurs three times in verse 16, once in verse 17, and the noun justification occurs in verse 21. Uh, Wes was talking about Christianese, and uh, this is a great theological term, and yet it is applicable. We need to be aware of using high terms when we're discussing things with people who do not, do not know Jesus, but they would identify with what it means to be justified, because basically that means I want to be righteous, and to shorten that up, I want to be right. All of us have this innate desire to be right in all of our conversations, in all of our assertions, in all of our arguments. We want to be right. In fact, we are so weary of candidates, political candidates, wanting to justify themselves and justify their position before us masses, these voters, uh, that uh, we recognize that every candidate wants to be seen as right wants to be seen, therefore, as righteous. They are justifying their position and justifying their past actions. That's what justification is. So it's a very applicable term. It is a legal term. It comes to us in Christianity. It is actually a legal term used in the court of law. And the Apostle Paul expands on it quite broadly in the book of Romans, but here he's going to do an introduction in these verses to get us ready for chapters 3 and 4. It's vital that we understand what justification means. It's borrowed from the law courts, and it's the exact opposite of condemnation. Every person knows what it means to be condemned, whether you're a criminal, criminal on death row or just a person who has made a mistake and then has been condemned by the press or by friends or co-workers for it. It's the exact opposite of condemnation. To condemn is to declare somebody guilty. To justify is declare, to declare them not guilty, innocent, or righteous. Technically, it is to be declared righteous by a righteous, holy God. In the Bible, it refers to God's act of unmerited favor, which is his grace to which he puts the sinner right with himself, not only pardoning or acquitting him, but accepting him and treating him or her as righteous. Justification, the gospel of grace being defended here by the Apostle Paul. The passage today provides a bridge for us between the personal section of chapters 1 and 2 and the doctrinal section that we will be entering into in chapters 3 and 4 of this letter. And as we look back to 20, 21 centuries, back to the time the Apostle Paul wrote this, probably about 48 AD, we still need to understand that for the believer, our identity is not measured by what we do, verses 16 and 17. Our identity is not measured by what we do. Look at verse 15 and 16 with me. The Apostle Paul, remember, back up in verses 11 through 14, is opposing Peter, here referred to as Cephas. 
He's opposing Peter because Peter is involved in hypocrisy of compromising the gospel of grace by saying that we have to do what the false teachers are saying who came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, which is up on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, Antioch of Syria. And uh, if Peter had come and he was eating with the Gentiles, which for a person raised in Jewish religion, that was a no-no. He wasn't supposed to do that in the Jewish religion. But now under Christ, we have freedom in Christ. In fact, in Acts 10 and 11, the apostle Peter was shown that all things are, are clean. He, there were no unclean foods and that he could participate in fellowship with Gentile believers. But he violated that out of fear of these false teachers who came down. They're called Judaizers. They're trying to apply Jewish law to the gospel of grace by saying, oh, yes, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. You need to adhere to the Mosaic law. You need to go through all of these steps in order to be a true believer. And so Cephas and many other Jewish believers, as well as Barnabas, who is a Jew from the island of Cyprus, had uh, caved in to these threats. And Paul is opposing them. And so he's still addressing them in verse 15. He says, we are Jews by nature, not sinners from among the Gentiles. It's a tongue-in-cheek thing. He's referring back to his Jewishness, where all Jews just referred to Gentiles, which is everybody who's not a Jew, as Gentile sinners. And Gentiles basically means dogs. They look down upon them. And uh, he says in verse 16, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith, in Christ Jesus. He's still making this case. He's defending the gospel of grace. And he's saying that we are not declared righteous by adhering to the law, by what we do. Uh, he's emphatic in verses 15 and 16. Uh, <clears throat> Even we who have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. In other words, declared righteous. The question is, is how, do, how do we, how do human beings who are sinners by nature, the Bible says for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, how do we stand before a perfect, righteous, creator God and bring ourselves as if we're righteous, as if we're good enough to be with him in heaven? And the only way is through Jesus Christ. And through God the Father declaring us righteous in him, Christ's righteousness, which was perfect, he was the only human being in history that kept the law perfectly. Nobody else has done it. Not Mother Teresa, not Billy Graham, not you, not me. None of us. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus Christ in his life here on earth kept the law perfectly. He made, did not sin. And therefore, he is the only one who could enter heaven for us, and his righteousness is imputed to us. It's given to our account, essentially. And so when God embraces us and encourages us and enfolds us into heaven, into his family, it's because of what Jesus Christ has done. It says that what we know, the Jewish believers, it's emphatic what they know, which is uh, the, the Greek word, which means to know experientially and intimately based on fact, that there is a need for this declaration that we are right before God, but we are not declared right because of our good works. We are declared righteous because of solely on faith on Jesus Christ. Even we Jews are not justified by good works, the Apostle Paul says. You know, these are the 
the God's chosen nation, God's people. Paul himself, he says, yeah, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was righteous. I was a Pharisee. And yet that didn't count for anything. And nobody will be justified by doing good works. And then verse 17, Paul declares that once we, put our, uh, once we are declared righteous by Christ, we are not to put ourselves under this legal system, the law which simply condemns us. Look at verse 17 with me. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. One of the things in studying Scripture is to read and then analyze what the attacks upon the Apostle Paul and the Gospel of Grace were. And as they were then, they're the same today. The argument was, is if you're saying, Paul, that all we need to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be saved, you're wrong because that just opens the door to all sorts of licentiousness, to libertinism. And they're arguing, and we hear that today. If you go to a church that preaches grace like this one, there will be attacks. Well, you guys, you're, you're antinomianism. In other words, you're without the law. You're without controls over your life, which is actually a false accusation. The Apostle Paul will get into that more and more. And so our once declared righteous, we're not to put ourselves under the legal system. We sought justification or being declared righteous, being right before God because of what Christ has done, not because of the law. And we are sinners just like Gentiles, as Apostle Paul says. And so the question is, is Christ the author of sin? And he says these, these words, God forbid. The Greek is meganoito. When your kids come up and ask you if they can do something you know is completely out of your will, you go, meganoito. You know, you don't let them do it. May it never be, or God forbid. These false teachers promoted the preaching of salvation by grace. Uh, that the, They promoted that, the preaching of salvation by grace, promoted sin, but this was false. This was false. Our identity is put to death. Not only is our identity not measured by what we do in verses 18 and 19, our identity is put to death. Look at verse 18 with me. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so I might live to God. If we rebuild this law system, and that's what the Galatian believers were doing, they were saying, oh, we must add to this gospel of grace. We must add adherence to the Mosaic law. The law killed me. My only hope is in Christ, the Apostle Paul says. In verse 19, he tells us there that, uh, for through the law I died to the law, so I might live to God. Death, of course, simply means separation, separation from the law. He's dead to the law. The law taught Paul that he can never keep it, and the only way he's declared righteous is from Christ and with Christ's righteousness. So our identity is put to death, and thirdly, our identity is forever changed. There's a radical transformation in verse 20. What a great passage, One, a verse to be memorized. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The bottom line is if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you trusted in Christ for your salvation at age 5 or 35, you are no longer who you used to be. You're seen in Christ. You are no longer who you used to be. This whole idea of being justified in Jesus Christ. Uh, when uh, my daughter started driving daughters, uh, 
they needed fuel for the car, and so they would go to the gas station. And remember in the old days, some of us who were ancient remember going to the gas station. You get your gas pumped by somebody. I guess in Oregon they still do that. But uh, then you'd go into the gas station and get out real dollar bills and pay for your fuel, okay? Now, uh, typically we don't do that. You just run a card through the slot and pump your gas and away you go, get your receipt. When my daughter started driving, they needed to fuel up the car and they'd had to pay for the gas. Uh, So I discovered that I didn't even have to go with them. They could go by themselves. And actually they took on my identity because they had my credit card And they'd go down, and uh, they had my identity, and they took all of my riches, such as they are and were, with them in that piece of plastic, and uh, they're hers. And uh, what is mine is put into her account. The credit is not hers. Not the credit is hers, not because she earned it. The credit is hers because what is mine has been given to her at that moment for that purpose. And so she took on my identity essentially. And for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, because we have been united to the death of Christ, united to the life of Christ, his identity has become the believer in Christ. It's become my identity. And we, us, you are profoundly loved by the Savior. My identity is dead. I'm crucified with Christ. Legally, this means in verse 20, we are no longer condemned. Relationally, we are one with Christ. That is a positional truth that we need to camp on. We are one with Christ. We are able to choose. You know, Christians are the ones who are able to choose not to sin, able to live a life of Christ because he gives us the power to live lives of godliness daily. And verse 20 makes it abundantly clear that Christianity is not a matter of keeping the law or carefully checking off a list of do's and don'ts. Neither is human effort to bring off a superior kind of morality, but a divine life living in and through us. You know, every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us that in in Corinthians. At the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit comes into your life, indwells you. It's not a feeling. It's not a liver quiver, uh, but it it is true because the Scripture says so. God is our power source. We don't need to pray for power. What we need to pray about is, God, make me aware of your power and appropriate that power, especially in those times and decisions where the decisions are murky at best or difficult to make. Paul died to the law because he was crucified with Christ. He lived to God because Christ lived with him. He said, it's not that I who live, I in my own strength, I in my own choice, but Christ lives in me. And that should be a great reminder and a cure for discouragement, frustration, and weakness. Because if you return to law, all it does is condemn you. Verse 21, he concludes this section as he uh, gets ready for chapter 3. My identity in the flesh is living and it's lived by faith. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Uh, J. Vernon McGee, great radio preacher who's still on the radio, uh, said these words, quote, He died for me down here that I might live with him up yonder and that he might live in me down here. Uh, verse 21 is a summary of the Apostle Paul's position. If there was even the faintest possibility that people could work for their own righteousness, then the death of Christ was unnecessary. Have you ever thought of that? 
if there's anything, one iota, one-tenth of one-hundredth percent that we could do anything to, occur, to get our own salvation, Christ died needlessly. The fact that he died proves the need for a sacrificial death and the inability of individuals to achieve their own justification. In short, salvation is not of us, but it is of God. Remember, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And that is the wonder of the gospel of grace that the Apostle Paul is defending here and will explain in the next two chapters. The key to our true identity is found in the fact that we die to the law, we die to self, and live to him. We keep on. Romans 12, 1 and 2 tell us we keep on uh, being a living sacrifice. That's not a one-time decision. That is a moment-by-moment, day-by-day decision that I'm going to live for Christ. Again, I remind you that our flesh is not redeemed. These earthly bodies are not redeemed yet. And so there's this battle. My flesh wants what it wants, what it wants, when it wants it. You know, and that is the battle in the spiritual life. Uh, in her book, It Only Hurts When It Laughs, Ethel Barrett tells how four servants of God died to self and died to sin. George Mueller, who began many, many orphanages in Great Britain in another century, when questioned about his spiritual power, responded simply, One day, George Miller died. Uh, D.L. Moody was visiting New York City when he consciously died to his own ambitions. Charles Finney slipped away into a secluded spot in a forest to die to self. Evangelist Christmas, F, uh, Christmas Evans put down on paper his surrender to Christ and began it by writing these words, I give my soul and body to Jesus. It was in a very real sense the death of self. John Gregory Mantle wrote, There is a great difference between realizing on that cross he was crucified for me and on that cross I was crucified with him. The one brings deliverance from sin's condemnation, the other from sin's power. And so therefore, recognizing that we have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20, we should, as Paul admonished us in Romans 6.11, consider ourselves to be dead to sin indeed. We still have sinful tendencies, but having died to them, sin has no longer has a dominion over us. We die to our selfish desires, our selfish pursuits, we also think of ourselves as being alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We should choose those things that please him. So what are some lessons from this passage for us today? I find four. There's probably many others. But at least four primary uh, applications or lessons or truths that come out of this paragraph. First of all, our greatest need is justification, our acceptance before God, being declared righteous by a righteous holy God. In comparison with this, all other human needs pale in significance. There's no need greater than to be justified by God. How can we be put right with God so that we spend time in eternity in his favor and with him? We all need this justification. Secondly, justification is not by works of the law, not by doing good things, but through faith in Christ. Martin Luther, by the way, uh, October 31st was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. It was kind of went to the back pages because of Halloween, but it was probably a, one of the most important, significant anniversaries. But Martin Luther, who uh, nailed his 95 Theses to the Wittenberg Castle door, expressed this idea that we are saved by faith, not by the law, expressed it this way, quote, I must hearken to the gospel 
which teaches me not what I ought to do, for that is the proper office of the law, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. That is, that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and from death. Thirdly, we are not to trust in Jesus, or excuse me, not to trust in Jesus Christ because of self-trust. This is an insult both through the grace of God and the cross of Christ because it declares when we trust our own good works, our own selves for a righteous standing for God, it declares uh, the grace of God, the cross of Christ to be unnecessary. There is no point to it. And fourthly, to trust in Jesus Christ and thus become united to him is to begin altogether in a new life. You are no longer who you used to be. We are in Christ, we are more than justified. We find that we've actually died and risen with him. So we are able to say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We have a picture of the struggle for all of us, I think, in the little man called Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus in the Gospels? Remember the Sunday school song? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He crawled up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Okay, that was Zacchaeus. Why did he crawl up there? Because all the people were too tall. He couldn't see when Jesus came through. There's a picture here of the fact that the, the Bible says the crowd got in the way. And I think you and I get in the way sometimes of our own sanctification, our own growth in the spiritual life. And perhaps we get in the way of people who need to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Not our physical bodies blocking their view, but our lives are doing. Sometimes people cannot see Jesus because our lives are in the way. They say, if that is Christianity, I don't want it. How many times have we heard that? What they see is a grim, self-forced doing of our lives and not Galatians 2.20. Lives live by faith. So is your doing getting in the way of your being? Justification is the act of God where he declares the believing sinner righteous in Jesus Christ. Well, if you watch the World Series, uh, which was a pretty exciting series. I haven't watched one for a long time between the Indians and the Cubs. Uh, but uh, Ben Zobrist, who plays for the Cubs, was the MVP of the series. And uh, he was interviewed uh, before this game, but he was interviewed and uh, the interviewer said, you played really well, you, uh, you got promoted pretty quickly, but baseball is fundamentally a failure game. And I thought that was interesting. But Zobrist responded, he said, quote, it's funny, I listen to those interviews after people win the Super Bowl or World Series and stuff, and sometimes I'm like, we're missing it. If we are believers and we're trying to tell people, look, you work hard and do it as unto the Lord, he's going to bless you and you're going to be successful, that's not what life is all about. I hear people use Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's like their pump-up verse that's going to allow them to do things on the field they'd never done before. But when you really look at that passage, the Apostle Paul is saying, I can do even jail. I can do misery, I can do weakness through Christ who strengthens me. Zobrist goes on. For me, I have to realize if that's the truth, when I fail, I need to give God the glory just as much as when I succeed. If through, if, if through that, people can see my hope is not in my success or in my failure, it's in him, so let it be. Let it be for God's glory. Our freedom in Christ depends on our willingness to stand firm, 
defend our position of salvation by grace through faith. Let us pray. O Lord, the Apostle Paul risked everything to maintain the purity of the gospel. 